Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two of Hot Topics in CT, the July 2010 edition. And I mentioned last time that we'd look at small bowel, and there have been a number of different articles talking about CT enterography. And this article made the point that CT enterography is very good for looking at uh, GI bleeders, um, made the point that, of course, it's not a simple study. Um, the fact is, because of potential for perceptual errors, radiology should, radiologists should familiarize themselves with the appearance of bleeding at CT enterography. And in this article, they found that the uh, triphasic CT had the potential to identify sources of GI bleeding in up to half of patients if reader errors are eliminated. So, um, again, it's one of those new techniques we're using, and it's something that we need to get aware of. And so let me just show you what their protocol was. They use lots of volumen. We typically use about two uh, uh, bottles, which is about 900 cc's, not 1350. They then used IV contrast, which we do injecting about 4 cc's a second, which is kind of our protocol. And they did two phases, which is pretty much our uh, uh, as well. Um, though we tend to be about more like 25 to 30 seconds. They looked at axial and coronal images. We also do 3D. They use glucagon. We do not use glucagon, but it's a good protocol. And again, in terms of CT enterography, again, um, the timing is very critical. Patients need to drink a bottle every 10 minutes. Uh, this is our protocol where we give two bottles of aluminum and one of water. But again, timing is indeed very critical. If you wait too long, it's not going to work out. And as I said, when you look at protocols, anywhere between, between two and three bottles, it's important to tell the patients they may get rapid diarrhea after the study, maybe go to the bathroom before they leave the hospital if they're going to be driving. Two bottles, borderline, three bottles, everybody has diarrhea. So just something to be aware of. Uh, and again, it's the sorbitol that's in the solution that people tend to have the uh, interaction to. Article by Philippe Serrier talking about CT endocrylysis, looking at Crohn's disease, uh, making the point that it's very good for determining, in fact, recurrent disease versus stenosis at anastomotic sites. And their uh, results were that in the diagnosis of anastomotic recurrence, severe anastomotic stenosis was 95% sensitive, both comb and stratification were 95% specific and stratification 92% accurate. And I'll just show you some examples. It's important you do CT endocolysis to go beyond the axial plane. Here's a nice example of Crohn's disease prior resection. But you really can see the recurrence uh, and the stricture much better in this 3D coronal display using volume rendering. And here's one more set of images. You can see very nicely the distal small bowel, very nice distal stricture. Uh, pre-stricture dilatation. And here's just a few more images showing you that. And here's the CT angiographic map. So post-processing becomes very, very critical in this regard. Now, another area in terms of small bowel I thought I'd mention is something that is uncommon, though I've seen a few cases recently, which is aortoenteric fistulae. And with aortoenteric fistulae, usually a differential diagnosis focuses on retroperitoneal fibrosis, an infected aneurysm, infectious aortitis, or perigraph infection without fistulization. Now, in terms of some of the facts, um, it's an important diagnosis to make because once you have an aortic enteric fistula, high morbidity and mortality. Mortality approaches 100% without surgical intervention. Primary fistula rare in most cases are secondary to and a result of prior surgery, but that's not always the case. 
Uh, these fistula occur between two weeks and 10 years post-surgery. Article on the subject, just some of the things that were found. GI bleeding is the most common presentation. You can see some of the other presentations from sepsis to abdominal pain to back pain and the like. And in this article by Vu, talking about the issues that, again, the things we look for, ectopic gas, loss of fat planes, extravasation of contrast, this absolute fistulization, and this inflammatory process that extends around it. So when you look at these in order, fistula between native aorta and the adjacent bowel is critical. Hematoma can be seen in the periodic region. You may see a penetrating ulcer, and most of the time it involves a duodenum, which makes no, uh, no great surprise because the duodenum crosses in front of the aorta. That's a very common site for the fistula to occur. And some examples, here's a patient with prior repair, and now you see the bowel loop is adherent, which is not uncommon, but it always makes you worry, and you start looking more carefully. You can see there's multiple air bubbles that are in the fluid around the lumen of the aorta. Sometimes it's best seen, as in this case, on the delayed phase imaging. But there you see the air bubble. Here you see it again, and that's an aortoenteric fistula. This patient underwent surgery. patient did okay after a stormy course, but it's something you really need to look at very carefully. It's a very subtle finding, but high clinical suspicion. Um, the next area I want to look at is in cardiac imaging. A number of different articles have appeared uh, this past few months. Uh, a couple relate to the ability for CT to detect, obviously, incidental findings. And here was an article by Kim. Lung cancer detected at cardiac CT, prevalence, clinical radiologic features, and importance of full field of view imaging. It was a good article. Uh, they found the prevalence of lung cancer at cardiac CT was 0.3% and 68% of these malignancies were at a resectable stage. They made the point that if you only looked at a very coned-down view, just the heart itself, uh, you could pick up the majority of cancers, um, but you would miss others. So again, uh, it's important to look at the entire chest. Our practice, and probably hopefully your practice, is you always reconstruct the full field of view to look at the lung fields and look at the mediastinum. And here's just some of their... Uh, uh, the comments they made about missing some of the lesions. So you missed 4 out of uh, 36, or 11%, and those were often the curable lesions. So you can see just some of the numbers and the importance of doing the study correctly. And the authors very nicely, Kim and associates, make the point that full field of view is mandatory. And just some of the features, and you, can, you should read the article. Uh, here's just some of the features in terms of the lesions picked up, lesion size, uh, with typically smaller lesions, location, very variable, the right up along was the most common. And you can see just from some of the numbers um, that with limited field of view, you're just going to miss a certain percent of lesions, and uh, th there's no reason to miss those lesions. Again, very, very important to indeed do the study correctly. Now, other articles on the topic, non-cardiac imaging, spectrum of findings, um, here are some of the findings, no great surprise from this article by Killen. Lung parenchyma, cancer obviously, lymphoma, PEs, aneurysms, hernias, and liver pathology. And in the article, they do make the point uh, uh, that you need to obviously to look for these extra cardiac findings. And again, look just beyond looking for nodules, very important. Now, there often is criticism about extracardiac findings, that it's looking for them, you increase the course of practicing medicine, and you pick up a lot of incidental findings that aren't important. There's an article by Lee this past month 
that made the point uh, that these findings are indeed important, but they looked at things from a cost perspective, but they made the statement that coronary CT frequently reveals potentially important extracardiac findings that are incidental, yet radiologists recommend further evaluation in only one-third of cases. And in fact, an even smaller fraction of cases receive further workup. The failure to follow up abnormal incidental findings may result in missed opportunities to detect early disease, but also limits the short-term attributable costs. And so it happened in their article, the costs were indeed very small when they looked at their patients. But again, uh, here's just some numbers they came up with. 102 incidental extracardiac findings. 52% of the findings, or 53 of them, were clinically significant, and 81% of these findings were newly discovered. The radiology reports made specific recommendations for follow-up in 36%, and only 4% of patients actually underwent follow-up. So this is like terrible, because you see what's happening. The radiologist detects it, but they don't tell the clinician what to do, and even when they tell them what to do, they don't listen. So I wonder if things are just falling between the cracks, and that was what the authors were commenting on. So it's very important that we give good recommendations what should be done if we see a nodule or any other finding, and perhaps it's going to be our responsibility to make certain that someone's doing something about this. One concern, of course, is that the uh, reports that go into the cardiologists who worry about the cardiac findings don't pay attention to the extra cardiac findings, and things are falling through the cracks. Again, something uh, indeed to be aware of. Now, the whole idea about doing CT and looking at the full field of view, here was an article by Mueller that made the point that when you do CT uh, after a cabbage procedure, you find a whole lot of unsuspected cardiac and non-cardiac findings. Um, again, this is no great surprise. Post-operative period, 19.7% uh, had at least one unsuspected potential significant finding. And my assumption, of course, is in this article, that many of these findings were picked up now because the patients did not have pre-procedure uh, CT. And you can see uh, uh, lung cancer would have been picked up early. Pneumonia is typically a post-op finding, of course. Graft occlusion is a post-op finding. Many of the cardiac findings, some may have been there earlier, some may have developed over time. But again, the conclusion that uh, CT is very good for picking up a range of findings, uh, and uh, it's important to look at everything. Another area that I've read a number of articles about and something we have a lot of experience at Hopkins about is Marfan syndrome. And just let me review some of the points. Autosomal dominant, known mutations on chromosome 15. The diagnosis is based on the Ghent criteria, which includes cardiovascular, ocular, and pulmonary abnormalities. It's important to diagnose this early because the average age of death in untreated patients is 35 years, while in treated patients, it's 75. Typically, what you look at is this two major or one minor criteria or one major and four minor. So what are those criteria? Major criteria, dilatation of the ascending aorta involving at least the sinuses of Valsalva with or without aortic regurge. And the second would be dissection of the ascending aorta. You may see both of those in the same patient. Minor criteria, dilatation of the section of the descending or abdominal aorta before age 50 dilatation of the main pulmonary artery before age 40, mitral valve prolapse, calcification of the mitral valve before age 40. Now, in terms of surgery in these patients, when do you do surgery? Ascending aorta, 4.5 centimeters or greater, or growing greater than 0.5 cm a year is indications for surgery. And when they do surgery, it's the root, aortic valve, and ascending aorta. So again, just something to remind you of. 
And I thought I'd also remind you of another vascular process, Takayashu's, which is a large vessel disease affecting aorta and its branches. Uh, affects women and young girls most commonly um, in the second and third decade of life. Circumferential wall thickening is the earliest finding. And when diagnosed, treatments include aggressive steroids or immunosuppressive therapy, as well as surgical revascularization of sites of involvement. Now, in terms of Takayashu's, we're seeing it more frequently. The classic thing about it is the pneumono classification. So I want you to be aware of that so you can look this up. It divides things into type 1, 2A, 2B, 3, all the way to type 5. And I won't read this. You can read this on your own. But you can see type 1, branches of the arch only, and that's the most common, uh, particularly left subclavian. And that goes all the way down to involvement of the entire aorta with branch involvement. Uh, coronaries or pulmonary arteries can be involved, and you get a C plus or a P plus. Okay? So again, another thing, classifications are important. If we're going to deal with the referring physicians, we need to know this information. Since you don't see it that commonly, just have an available chart. Put it on your website or something, as we do on CT is Us. Now, a couple of articles have also focused on LVADs, and we're seeing these LVADs, or left ventricular assist device. You can see it here, but probably better on these 3D images in this patient. The attachments go from the patient's uh, uh, aorta down to the left ventricle. Uh, it's a t typically a temporary procedure in patients who are trying to buy time for cardiac transplant. Uh, the patients have all sorts of complications, inflow and outflow cannula complications, post-operative hemorrhage, pericardial tamponade, thrombus formation, aortic valve stenosis, aortic valve insufficiency, right-sided heart failure, infections. These are all difficult patients. Obviously, they're sick. They're often on steroids. Uh, typical use is a bridge for heart transplantation. It could be a destination therapy for patients un ineligible to receive a transplant or as a bridge to myocardial recovery. So again, we're seeing these used more commonly these days. Article by Carr on the subject um, is a very good article to look at it and makes the point about since we're seeing these more commonly, you need to be able to understand the complications. Okay, what else? Well, there's another area. Let me just go to the appendix for a second. And there was a couple of good articles that I read. Um, there are a couple of articles looking at the best technique for the appendix. Remember we've spoken before about oral versus oral and IV versus IV versus rectal, on and on and on. But this article made the point that uh, the reader is more important than the exact technique you use. Uh, and in this article, uh, no matter how you did the studies, if you knew how to read them, you would do a good job. Visualization of the appendix depended predominantly on the reader rather than the use of IV oral or oral and IV contrast agents or on the radiation dose. That indeed is very, very important. Um, another article on the subject. Um, Anderson made the point uh, that using 64-slice CT, isotropic reformations, had similar characteristics for the diagnosis of appendicitis when IV was used alone or when oral and IV were used, making the point that you can do appendicitis studies very quickly because you don't need to wait for oral contrast to get down there into the right lower quadrant and wait two hours. That IV indeed works very nicely. So IV may be the ideal thing to use in this scenario. Now, of course, one issue with appendicitis that always comes up is CT. What about radiation dose? What about scanning in women? What about younger patients? Good article by Hernas Schulman looking at this, comparing CT and ultrasound. Again, it's very important to recognize 
there's a risk reward. And they, as she says, in our quest to reduce the stoatic risks, unnecessary surgery and eruption appendix are not the most appropriate alternatives. As radiologists, radiation protection is one of our primary concerns, uh, but we also need to ensure that each patient receives the most accurate examination for the clinical problem. And the point is CT is excellent for appendicitis. Now, in saying that, you know, there's a good question people sometimes ask. This patient, we read appendicitis, the appendix is thickened, it's inflamed, but the surgeon wasn't that impressed, at least from a physical exam. In this case, also we read appendicitis, axial and coronal, but again, the surgeon wasn't that impressed. Hmm, well, what exactly does that mean? It's very interesting. Um, you know, there was a really good article and the article asked that question, what if a CT scan suggests appendicitis, but the surgeon says the patient does not? Who's going to be correct? Well, in this article by Stengel, they found that the radiologists are typically correct, that you can defer, not operate, but eventually you will. Five of 13 patients with CT findings of appendicitis and reassuring clinical evaluation, results in whom immediate treatment was deferred, ultimately returned with appendicitis. In patients with CT results positive for appendicitis and benign or atypical clinical findings, a diagnosis of chronic or recurrent appendicitis may be considered. And the author stated strongly the decision to forego surgery in patients with CT findings compatible with appendicitis but reassuring surgical findings often results in missed appendicitis and increased risk of perforation. So the authors do make the point is that if you see it, CT is positive, the patient needs to have surgery. If you don't do surgery, all you're simply doing is wasting time and effort and the patient's gonna come back and perhaps they'll perforate. So hopefully I've covered a number of interesting things and I'll see you next week and we'll cover a few more. Thanks very much.